I just wanted to take a second to let you know that today's episode is a response to some current events that have happened within the last week. We are recording on Thursday, August 8th, 2019, in the wake of a weekend filled with mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, in Dayton, Ohio. We will be discussing the causes of violence and the American church's response to violent rhetoric and acts of physical violence, particularly as it relates to guns. I want to remind you that this is called the Unafraid Podcast, so we don't want to shy away from conversations like these. We need to learn how to, with opposing viewpoints, come to the table and be able to have these sorts of discussions. To see each other, to hear each other, to empathize with one another, and to recognize that my viewpoint is not the only one that exists, nor is it the only one that matters. I speak for John and myself when I say, please do not turn this podcast off. Venture into the deep water with us and have just enough courage to come to the table so we can, together, advocate for peace. Thanks, as always, for being willing to be a part of these conversations with us. All right, here's the show. Welcome to the Unafraid Podcast, hosted on the OKC First Podcast Network. My name is Zach Lucero, the youth and creative pastor here at OKC First. Sitting here with me, as always, is everyone's favorite Christian dad who has never met a dad joke too cringeworthy to try out on his kids at breakfast, senior pastor John Middendorf. Hello, young Zachary. Good to be back in the saddle, the blazing saddle here with you. Yikes. Uh, That is uh, an old movie, John. I know. I'm just, I'm trying to connect with an older audience out there. Right, right. Right. Current. Right. Okay. Um, do old people use podcasts? Um, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Today we walked down the hall and saved our guests from having to put out some inevitable metaphorical and maybe even literal fire. Our executive pastor of Broken Things, Aaron Bullerjag. Welcome. Hey, to be fair, I don't think anything has caught fire for several weeks now. <laughs> no air conditioning. What's the last thing that caught fire? Was it an air conditioner that caught We've fire? We've had a lot of kind of electrical sort of right. sparking activity, right? Um, but no like blazing open flame for a while. Okay. Yeah, probably my uh, biggest failure working here was the day that I was trying to light a candle uh, with a match in my office and the, the match flew out of my hands as I struck it. And it was lit on the floor, and then I put it out instead of just letting it burn the building down. <laughs> oh, I, wow. Yeah. I, since we're on the record, last. I need yes. to officially say that's a bad that's, idea, and yeah. I would never condone it. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Of course. <laughs> and uh, just in case our insurance company is listening, right. Move I don't to know about it. Move to strike that last line. <laughs> that's a good... Uh, that's Motion a good, granted. That's yeah. good. That was good. Move to strike. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Aaron, we, we want to take a minute, um, in case anybody doesn't know you, uh, to learn a little bit about you. Could you tell us just a little bit about who you are, what you do here? Uh, some of the, uh, you know, when you're a pastor at OKC first, you don't always do just one thing. And actually I would, I would be inclined to say a hundred percent of the time we do not do just one thing. Um, and so could you just let, uh, us know and the listeners know kind of, uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. Absolutely. I am... Currently the executive pastor, which means that um, the way I describe my job is roughly one-third really cool, fun pastor stuff, and one-third paperwork, Mm -hmm. and one-third what broke this week. Right. 
And uh, so I do a lot of entry-level plumbing and entry-level heating and air conditioning, just sort of troubleshooting across the board. My wife is the college and community pastor, as well as the Young Clergy Network director. And so I get to help her with a lot of those projects. Uh, her name is Britt. She was, de- on, she was on last week. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah, she's delightful. Uh, 10 out of 10, would marry again. <laughs> and um, in between those things, I also teach history part-time at Southern Nazarene University. I'm a proud SNU alum, and uh, my undergraduate degree is from there. And um, You have a graduate degree, too. I do, yeah. I went to Oklahoma State and yeah. got a degree in American history, and so um, took theology classes on the side for ordination. Right. Um, through SNU and Mount Vernon and the Oklahoma District. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to serve in a place that encourages me to be a pastor and a professor. And um, OKC First is ideal because of the ways that we really lean into Christian education and spiritual formation. And so there's a lot of overlap to my jobs, and I really appreciate that. Not only does Aaron do kind of the hands-on on the ground pastoring work, but the coordination that Aaron pulls off for us enables so much else to go on. And I and I said it to the church on Sunday, we we want to have, we are actively pursuing uh, multiple congregations here. And yes, it causes logistical nightmares, but Aaron, Aaron is so good at helping us to coordinate schedules. And I, that is a ministry all on its own, but it, it should not be underappreciated that Aaron's work uh, and and to some extent too, Avarilla, who helps to to help uh, helps with some of that administrative work, they enable uh, the hands-on grassroots ministry to happen. Otherwise, a lot of it just wouldn't happen. So I'm grateful. You can't quit. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> as you as you heard in the in the intro before even the uh, even before the theme music came on, today's episode is going to be. Probably a little heavier. Uh, we're we're uh, in the midst of some current events that um, are troubling and and um, and are saddening and um, and yeah. And so, John, you you wanted to say something before we even get started with our conversation with that. And so, I wanted to provide that space for you here um, to say what you what would you like to say to our listeners? Yeah. Um, so. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about what we got into on Sunday. Here, here we are in the aftermath of of two, actually, three shootings that happened between Thursday and Sunday night, I believe. And uh, I ended up feeling like that I had to, to talk about that on Sunday morning. And I think it's it's the right thing for us to talk about it today. And and we are going to if you if you are a a strict adherent, let's say, to Second Amendment rights, and you don't want there to be any kind of restriction whatsoever, uh, you're going to be frustrated by what you hear today. Um, because we're going to talk about things that I believe are will fall into the category of, of common sense gun reform, but I don't want us to be afraid to talk about it. Now, my challenge would be to my friends, and I have friends who, who want to protect and defend the rights to have all kinds of guns. I want to say to my friends, uh, we can disagree. We talk about it all the time. We can disagree. We can disagree Christianly about this very, very important subject. I can assure you that my uh, hope and dream in all of this is to protect life, is to protect life. Uh, I hope that that is not 
worth breaking community or breaking relationship over. I will say this, uh, though I have felt this way for a long time, and I have for years had very close and dear friends who are gun advocates, I would say, their being gun advocates has not been reason for me to break fellowship with them. <laughs> so I hope as as we become, uh, as we kind of go public, I guess, for lack of a better term, ab- about some of these things, that it uh, people will find the the wisdom and the value of disagreeing Christianly if they do in fact disagree. And um, I'm always, I will not be drawn into a social media fight. I just won't. But I am happy to sit down and buy the coffee or buy lunch so that the person with whom I disagree can see the expression on my face as I communicate in in love and in concern uh, while maybe still disagreeing. So we're going to talk about these things. There is some chance that you may not agree with what we say, but just know that as we say what we say, it is with the purest of intentions that, that we would honor and respect and value and protect life. And that's the ultimate Christian move, right? What Christ told his disciples uh, at the Last Supper was not, the world will know that you are my disciples because you always agree with each other. Right. Or the world will know you are my disciples because you always come down on the same side of every issue. He said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And you're still going to be human beings, and it's still going to be really hard. And the Holy Spirit will come and will help you deal with those difficulties. But in the meantime, your primary and principal responsibility as my followers is to love. And that's what we're trying to do. It's great. It's great. So uh, today's episode comes on the heels of a, a tough weekend in America. We are recording on Thursday, August 8th. I want to take a moment to read through a few things that have happened in the last week. Um, On Saturday, August 3rd, a gunman opened fire in a Walmart and around uh, a nearby shopping mall in El Paso, Texas, leaving at least 22 people dead and about two dozen injured. Early Sunday morning on August 4th, a gunman killed at least nine people and injured 30 outside a bar in Dayton, Ohio. And this doesn't even include shootings happening in New York City, Chicago, in California. John, you mentioned uh, you mentioned in your opening statement um, that you addressed our congregation on Sunday morning. Um, you, I, on Sunday morning, you posted to our Slack uh, worship planning channel that you would like to be the one to do the call to worship, um, a time that happens in the service pretty early, um, and that shapes and, um, and orients us and, uh, and puts us in a posture um, that's going to set the tone for that day. Uh, could you share with us sort of your thought process going into that? Um, what were some of the what were some of the conversations you were having um, that morning, and some of the thoughts in your head? And then what what did you actually say to us? That last one was going to be tough because it, it, a lot of it, I I had sort of a rough outline of things I wanted to talk about and connect, but I don't I don't know exactly all that I that I said. I'll, yeah. I'll get to the gist of it. What goes through my head though, I I am. I am aware that that silence can be used by the opposing side as support. (laughs) And so I needed to make sure that I wasn't inappropriately silent. And even members of my own family encouraged me to not be silent. Um, And that that was super compelling for me when when my kids want to know, okay, are you going to say something? Um. I also, I also think that 
with all the kind the kind of work that we're trying to do around here in our neighborhood and the kind of work that we're trying to do as a church in service to the broader denomination uh, i think we have to take i think we have to make sober assessment of of where we are and what it is that we're expected to do and to say and recognize that we have to speak up we we have to there's there is a not only is there a justice component to it, but there's a, there's a leadership component to it. We have to speak up. We have to speak up. And what I wanted to say to the to the people Sunday morning, and what I what I hope I got across Sunday morning was, it doesn't have to be this way. It just doesn't have to be this way. I mean, have whatever opinion you want to have about guns. Have whatever opinion you want to have about legislation. Have, have whatever political persuasion you want to have, but it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be that we on a weekly and even a daily basis have to face just this wave after wave after wave of mass shootings and violence. It just doesn't have to be this way. And there is a societal muscle group that's being engaged, as, and, and, it's man, and it manifests as, a, um, as mass shootings and it, it manifests as violence on on this scale and and another thing that i wanted to say to our people was that we are as we come to worship trying to engage a, a differing muscle group a different muscle group that will that will actually shape us in the opposite direction and uh i i think i ended with this if i didn't i should have ended with this that hey church we we are this church is a gathering of different congregations, and that is on purpose so that we can work that different muscle group so that we don't necessarily start from a basis of fear or otherness where the other is concerned, but that we will actually rehearse, even as we walk the halls, what it's like to be around people who aren't like us, who don't believe like us, or perhaps just don't like us. We want to have, we want to be around those people and, and again, work on that muscle group and then maybe most pointedly around the table, around the table at the, at the end of our services, as we approach the, the Eucharistic moment, I want our people to be aware that we are being shaped in ways that should, that should shape us to be people less and less and less likely to participate in a mass shooting episode, <laughs> or people who will be shaped to uh, not only be people of peace, but then to promote that same peace out there so that our neighborhoods and the, the climate out there is less likely because of our presence, because we've been shaped by the broken body and the shed blood. And then as we are put out, as we walk out into our neighborhoods to be the broken body, I, I hope that our presence there makes it less and less likely that there will be mass shootings because we will have engaged that other muscle group. Um nourished and fed and coached and coaxed uh, by all kinds of liturgies and worship, but specifically that moment around the table. Uh, and I just couldn't not say it. We, couldn't, we can't be a worshiping community and claim this, this Jesus character as our always being slaughtered lamb slash king and be silent. And so I'm, I'm glad that we weren't. John, can you talk a little bit more about the makeup of some of those congregations? Because I know that at OKC First, we have three Nazarene worshiping congregations who are a part of us in just about everything that we do. But we also have several other groups who use our facilities as partner kind of sister congregations that also help 
um, stretch us and teach us about things and experiences we don't have ourselves. Yeah. So um, as opposed to the model where you would where you would have one church with multiple locations, we're trying to explore what it might look like to be multiple churches in one location, so that we can again engage that 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 other muscle group that is a that moves us toward peace. And so, yes, we have a liturgical congregation in addition to what I'm I'm going to call the sanctuary congregation that meets at ten thirty, which is also kind of liturgical. Which is way. yeah, it has liturgical elements, right? Yeah. That's that's the one where I preach. Neo liturgical. Uh, what's that? Neo liturgical. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that's that. Good. That's good. But we have a we have an early morning liturgical congregation led by Dr. Tashjian and uh, Dr. Logan Crook. Um, they meet early. They are us, but it is a different uh, liturgical moment and even a different liturgical style, really. And then there's a Burmese congregation later on in the day. And then in addition, we have a, a CME church, and Reverend DeCarla Steele is the pastor of that church plant. And by the way, she'll be preaching in a 1030 service here in about a week because we're, we want to be intentional about about interacting and collaborating. We have another church uh, that is a church plant, uh, Impact Community Church. Um, I They are non-denominational by and large, but boy, they've hit the ground running. And uh, that, is a, that is a wonderful and beautiful African-American church that sees the value and the power of, of integrating. And so we're going to begin sooner rather than later to integrate our kids and our teens and on Wednesday nights in terms of the adults. And so that's a good thing. Uh, we have another non-denominational congregation that meets actually on Thursday nights, The Gathering. Uh, and The Gathering, I, I I am not sure how to best describe their church uh, or even their, their liturgy. What I can tell you is that they are interested in being a part of this collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're active. We actually have another group. And I, I think I told you this, Aaron, if not, I'm breaking news right here. That, okay, bring it on. <laughs> that there is another Burmese congregation coming to visit the 1030 service on on Sunday because um, our pastor of our, of our current Burmese congregation, Tong Lal, has himself gone out looking for other congregations that need homes. And so now he's recruiting pe- because he's bought into that same vision. Absolutely. Um, and then finally, there is a another... Latino congregation, Luzi Vida, and they meet roughly the same time that we do, and we've been partners with them for 10 years. And um, though they will at some point move on to a building that they are building in another part of town, um, we love them and hope to collaborate more with them in the weeks or months that we have left with them before they take off. But all of us together, and so far, everyone is open to the idea of exploring what it might look like to be churches, even churches of different traditional uh, underpinnings, uh, different theological underpinnings, what it might look like for us to occupy the same space and to be forced into a collaborative, um, synergistic relationship. And that's why we need an, an Aaron Bowler Jack to help us see how those pieces fit. But every, I've been gratified with how open and excited even and how bought in all the other congregations are. And so we will do things together, and we will train together, and we will listen and pray for one another. And I'm telling you, in the process, become the kinds of people who make our societies less likely to experience mass shootings. 
Man, I love that. That's why I love I love being here because we're we're exploring intercultural and interfaith partnerships. And Aaron Aaron has been on the forefront of a lot of our interfaith partner stuff uh, in and amongst OKC Metro. Um, Aaron, could you speak to that a little bit? Because um, I know uh, a lot of violent rhetoric rhetoric is inspired by a lack of empathy or understanding of other faith systems. We've we've seen that. Uh, in the news and and even um, just some of the places that um, we have been as a church. Uh, so could you kind of speak to what is an interfaith partnership and and why why should we care? Sure, absolutely. I am really grateful for the ways that all the way back as an undergraduate student at Southern Nazarene University, I was in a world's living religions class with Dr. Culbertson, and he took us on field trips five or six times a semester, and we visited a Buddhist temple and a Hindu worship space and a mosque and a Jewish synagogue. And we learned names and we met people and we spent time where they were and in places that were sacred for them in not just polite conversation, but in really open honest, learning-oriented conversation. And that was something that was modeled to me um, as a 19 or 20-year-old kid at SNU and something that has really stuck with me in one form or another ever since then. Britt and I spent four years as missionaries for the Church of the Nazarene in Western Europe, two years in Poland, and about a year and a half in the UK. And we were over and over again grateful for the opportunity to interact with Catholic sisters and brothers and Anglican sisters and brothers and a broad cross-section of folks from different countries and different backgrounds and different uh, language groups and different races and ethnicities who cared deeply for God and their neighbors. And that was also transformative. Here in Oklahoma City, uh, I've had the opportunity given to me by OKC First and sort of permission and empowered by OKC First to cooperate with a number of groups. Um, one of them is called CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. Um, one of them is the Oklahoma Interfaith Alliance. One of them is the Oklahoma Conference of Churches. And these are all interfaith and or ecumenical groups who are working for the good of the city, people who care deeply about the well-being and the livelihood of Oklahomans, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of creed, people who care deeply about their neighbors. And so I've been a part of hosting discussion panels and serving on discussion panels and taking groups on field trips. We're hosting an interfaith youth tour here next month. Um, it's our experience that the more time we spend together, the more we recognize the things that we have in common, the more we understand that God's love for us is not dependent on where we came from or what language we speak, but that the way we model God's love for each other is the most important thing about the ways that we live out our faith. And that's something I've learned at OKC first, and I have learned at SNU, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to continue to participate in those conversations going forward. Some of the some of the pushback that I've experienced when when talking through interfaith um, and, and really like when we're talking different uh, faith systems, um, you know, like with uh, with the Islamic faith and, and things of like that, uh, 
people have said to me, well, I mean, if are you ashamed to talk about Jesus? Why are you not evangelizing people? Why um, are you are you scared to talk about Jesus? Is Jesus not that important to you? Could you speak kind of to that mindset and way of thinking about this whole thing? Sure, absolutely. One thing that I think folks might be interested to learn if they've not spent a lot of time in interfaith conversations is that the imam of your local mosque or the rabbi of your local synagogue will be extremely well-versed in faith and spirituality, but also Christian scripture. Um, Particularly for folks of the Muslim faith, they um, have a pretty good handle on who Jesus was historically and what we believe about Jesus as the Christ, as Christians. And so not only are they not um, oppositional about that, they are often very well-versed, sometimes more well-versed yeah. um, than I am in those conversations, um, which is part of the role that the strong emphasis on education plays in those faith traditions. The other thing I'm reminded of is about three years ago, there was an act of vandalism at a halal market that used to stand across the parking lot um, from a mosque here in Oklahoma City. And some of my friends at the Interfaith Alliance kind of organized an effort to go paint over it before, I think it was before the Friday services, which were going to be the next day there at the mosque. And um, they said, hey, here it is. We'll have paint. We'll have some supplies. Bring whatever you can. Bring rollers or brushes or pans or whatever you've got. Just show up and help us get this taken care of, get it covered up. And one of my friends uh, that I've learned a lot about these issues from is a guy named Lance Schmitz. Um, He is an Episcopal minister and uh, spent some time a long, long time ago here on staff at OKC First, and he taught me that a big part of interfaith ministry is just showing up and being in the room. And so I told Britt, I've, I've got to go be at this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what being helpful looks like, but this is where I've got to go. And so sure enough, um, I kind of put up the bat signal on Facebook and said, hey, friends in the area, if you've got time, please come help us take care of this and paint over this. And um There were folks from the Muslim community there, and there were folks from the Jewish community there. Rabbi Harris was there. Imam Nchasi was there. Some of the interfaith folks were there. The Oklahoma atheists were there, uh, showed up in force uh, because they believe in loving their neighbors too. And, but then I heard my name and I turned around. And my nephew, Gavin, who's about three, maybe four years old at the time, comes running across the parking lot to me. And his dad, Phil, um, said, hey, we're here to help. And Gavin was so excited. And it was so beautiful to see that kind of love and community modeled um, to my nephew. And so about the time I got Gavin hooked up with, you know, the smallest smallest paintbrush ever, I heard my name again. And I turned around and uh, it was Gage Diffie, a uh, friend of mine from SNU, who said, hey, this is the right place to be. And Gage is somebody who's got a degree in theology and has a deep appreciation for the Jewish faith and culture and said, yeah, this is the right place to be. Everything that I've learned about God from my worshiping community and from my education says, this is where Jesus would be in this moment. And so I think that brings me back to the idea that 
often, not always, but often the best way to talk about Christ and who Christ is, is to model the love of Christ and to be present with the people that Christ would be present with and to show love to them in ways that help them know that what I believe about God is that God is always on the side of the marginalized. God is always on the side of the people whose businesses have been vandalized. God stands in solidarity with people when they're attacked. And so that's what we're going to do too. Because we take Jesus that seriously. That's exactly right. Man, it's incredible. I love it. I didn't know the part about your nephew. I love that kid. There's a there's a really great picture of us on Facebook. It was my profile photo for a long time, and uh, he's got paint all over his hands. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure that that uh, we'll make sure that, that shows up on Instagram. There you uh, go on this post because that's that's incredible. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like empathy is is huge in um, combating violence in, in in our communities and in America as a whole, and and. Um, just this lack of understanding of of who I, we 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 tend to to gravitate towards the most extreme version of of something or or whatever uh, echo chamber we've put ourselves into that is telling us some way of thinking about an entire people group and painting with these broad brushes um, and and uh, the hope is at least here around here the hope is and what we're trying to do with our our kids and our students and our people is that. Um, we want to put them in situations where we're rubbing shoulders with people or, or you know, painting a wall together um, with people who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't. Um, I love what you said, John, who don't might not even like us or, or aren't like us. Um, and I think I think that speaks Jesus louder than any actual word might. Absolutely. I mean, Christ in the Sermon on the Mount says, right. love the way that God loves and be perfected in that love the way that God is perfect in love. And that's what um, John Wesley pointed back to when he was talking about sanctification. He said, to be sanctified, this thing we call holiness, that is the crux of our entire movement, this whole Wesleyan holiness thing that we're doing in the Church of the Nazarene. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. And every day the Holy Spirit empowers us to be made perfect in that love. And so... I think that's what the writer of First John is talking about, too, when we get this idea that perfect love drives out fear, because fear by itself is such an important, powerful human instinct, and it drives so much of how we spend our time and our money and our energy if we let fear be what drives us. And so this Christian message of love for God and neighbor, all of the neighbors, every single neighbor, I think that's at the forefront of what it means to be people of love and not of violence, of love and not fear. And people of our our particular brand of the our particular flavor of Christianity, for lack of a better term. Um, and I and I say that recognizing that immediately I might be accused of, okay, now you're drawing distinctions and and, and in so doing you're creating division. Except that this particular flavor of Christianity that I'm talking about uh, is more proud of proud money may, may not even be the right word, but is but is more interested in love of the other than it is the perfect articulation of a particular belief that I hold so tightly with both hands that it can be used as a weapon. Yeah, I think our best understanding, our best beliefs, are the ones that we live out. Right, not the ones that we post about. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so this this particular uh, version of Christianity that I'm talking about, I I think as Wesley did that, you know, it's interesting. You kind of have first, second, and third Wesley, uh, and and Wesley in terms of his evolution and his his life experiences as we understand them. Uh, third Wesley got involved in. I think Third Wesley would have been involved in some social media work because I think Third Wesley would have been very involved in advocating and in the formation of public sentiment that would eventually become public policy. Oh, absolutely. Wesley was not shy about speaking in public, writing in public, publishing for public consumption. He was all about getting the the news out by all the means available to all the people available. And spent a lot of time uh, in the halls of power toward the end of his life because he did want to see some of some of these convictions uh, come to fruition in in policy that would, in fact, protect folks on the margins, that that would hopefully navigate a a society away from fear and toward something better, something better. Yeah, one of the last letters that Wesley ever wrote, and and some scholars think, indeed, the last letter he ever wrote was to William Wimbler. William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament, who spent his entire life in parliament working for the abolition first of the slave trade in the British Empire and eventually for the abolition of slavery itself as a practice throughout the British Empire, which set the table and set the example for the rest of the world. Right. But navigating a society away from fear and toward hope, let's say is more challenging today because of social media. One of the things that that you do for us is uh, you help to organize our social media presence. And most of the time, it's you actually pushing the buttons. And other times, it's other people. Zach's done it before. And you have helped had other people get involved. But I like the way that you you help organize uh, a social media presence that is not oriented by fear, but it is oriented around hope. what I'd like to hear you talk about is the <laughs> the power of social media to do great good and great harm. Tell me, you've had some experiences with that here recently. What comes to mind when I ask you to talk about that a little bit? I think that we need to be really aware of how people are reading us and reading our posture and reading our language choices. I think that's true of us as individuals. I think that's true of us particularly as pastors. And I think that's true for us as worshiping congregations and faith traditions. The ways that people understand our love for God and understand our love for neighbor will be reflected in our social media presence. Right. Or not. Or not. And... I don't do this perfectly and am learning and get it wrong all the time. I want to be super upfront about that, Um, particularly me personally. Um, I I try to – I try to be really careful about how we post as a church and be careful about the ways that we speak in ways that are loving and we speak in ways that are hopeful. And we don't spend an awful lot of energy telling folks what we're against 
And we spend an awful lot of energy telling folks what we're in favor of, right. how God is in favor of them, how God wants them to live in a world that is peaceful, that God wants them to be at peace with their neighbors and with their enemies and their opposites and their irritants. And that's hard. <laughs> and we try to be honest about that. This is a thing that we are called to do, and none of us are doing it perfectly and it is really hard. Yeah. And that is the transformative work of the Holy Spirit at work within us, each of us and all of us, right. as individuals, as pastors, as a worshiping community. This is what it means to be holiness people, to believe that the Holy Spirit can and will work in us so that the next day and the next day and the next day, we're moving closer and closer toward perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. Right. And we're not there yet, but that's the journey we're on together. Right. And it strikes me that social media is one of those um, opportunities to violate the the content of the message by the tone of the message, right? And I think, just to compliment you again, I, I think you do great honor to the content of the message with the careful attention you pay to the tone of the message. And, and there have been times, I mean, I think, I think of the, of the things that we posted and by the way, Aaron's great about saying, Hey, this, this may get us close. What do you think? And he'll send it to me. And I, and you know, I don't, I can't remember many, very many times that we've ever edited at that point. You know, when, when I'm about to say something out loud, just with my voice, I tell people that I try to run it through the Jesus filter and the Brit filter. Yeah. And then if it gets through both of those, I'm probably okay to say it. Right. Maybe right. through uh, a Brita filter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Something. <laughs> I, I see what you did there. Oh, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Judging. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when it comes to the church social media stuff, I have kind of a third filter that I access. The and that, Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, sort of the John filter oh, yeah. um, where I will maybe screenshot, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Or would this be appropriate? Or what do you think about this wording versus that wording? And that's something that Pastor John is really faithful to help me with and uh, is very responsive to. Um, yeah, I think that's great. Or what if we did it this way instead of this way? Um, I remember one in the last week or so where I ran sort of a rough draft by him and then was able to say, actually, here, I think this photo, this image works better. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's very much a collaborative effort in those kinds of situations. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful for that. But we're faithful. We're faithful. I, I, I like that we're faithful in tone and in content, even as it has to do with the, the rare occasions where somebody wants to push back. Now we have been known to delete a, co- a comment. We have been known to do that. I think but I just did that today. Actually. Is that right? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. I mean, but so we have been known to delete a comment, but that, but that's because we want to make sure that we are caretakers of the content and the tone. Uh, it doesn't do the content of the message. It doesn't do the truth of the gospel any service if in the process of arguing it, we violate the content by the tone of the argument. <laughs> well, and I mean, honestly, we're not going to get much done in a comment section on Facebook. I mean, not no. not like the real work that needs to be done. I like how you said it earlier, like you're willing to have that conversation and we'll buy the coffee. Yeah. Because um, we 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 understand the importance of tone and face to face, and them being able to connect on that sort of human level. I had a pastor who was very angry at me that he he was not allowed to post his contrary to what we had posted 
statement in the comments. And I said, look, and I, and I just want to say this, articulate this for our listening audience out there. Our Facebook page is in some sense our billboard. Um, and he, what he responded to and the way that he responded was not in keeping with who we are trying to be. And so in addition to deleting it, I reached out to him and said, hey, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. And so that will be kind of the MO. That's what we'll do. If discussion, so long as it, the tone of the discussion doesn't violate the content of the message, will always be welcomed. We're people of dialogue more than we are people of monologue. For sure. And we are people who care about civil discourse, but what we're shooting for even beyond that is Christian conversation. Yeah. Whether it's Christian agreement or Christian disagreement, that is the kind of conversation we're trying to have. Guy said, so you, you're telling me I can't disagree. He said, no, not a bit, not, a, not at all. Let's, let's meet and, and we can disagree quite openly and that's fine. And again, I'll, I'll buy the coffee, but I, I, but I, but people watch like my kids, your kids, our kids are watching the way that we have this discussion. And so there's leadership to be exercised sometimes in the things that we say, and sometimes in the things that we exercise great self-control that we do not say. And, um, it's a, it's, it's, it's an inexact science. It's probably more art than science, actually, but we're trying to do it. And can I move us now to – so similarly, we'd like to use those same filters that we use in the social media discussion as we now approach a more legislative discussion, right? So uh, I'm not quite sure how to get us into this discussion. That was the best I could do as a, for a segue and a bridge. What do you think? Wow, you like that textbook? Life ten changing. Out of, ten yep. out of ten. Yep, yep, yep. Um, let's let's talk about it now. What when there is a? I noticed on the webs, uh, the Facebooks, that there is a um, there is something going around seeking signatures. There's a petition going around seeking signatures, and it actually is entitled Nazarene's Call for Gun Reform. I think these things, that's really four things, I, my my estimation of these things is that they aren't, that they do fall into the category of common sense gun, gun reform. Um, gun reform, I like better than control. Yeah, I think to, to kind of put on my professorial hat for a second, um, the kinds of recommendations that group is making are in keeping with the vast majority of Americans' wishes for the future of gun reform. For example. Based off of polling data. Yeah, absolutely. Republicans, Democrats, independents, older folks, younger folks, these kinds of baseline things are polling very well with Americans kind of across the board. Now, what's interesting, and there have been articles written about this in the last week, is that often the American electorate's preferences with regard to gun control or not are often um, not necessarily reflected by their elected officials. The elected officials are often much more resistant to um, reform efforts for a variety of different reasons. But I'm grateful for the ways that um, this one particular group has kind of laid a groundwork for here's some things that Americans sort of broadly support already, but then also that same document or webpage sort of fleshes that out theologically and theologically, particularly within the Nazarene tradition. Uh, And that's something that I appreciate too, to kind of connect the dots between what's good for our neighbor, 
what's good for society, what's good for the way that we understand that God is about and operating in the world. Where is this found, Aaron? Where, where can people find this petition and, and read through that rationale? I just Googled it a few minutes ago, and it is at nazarenesforpeace.com. And it is right there at the top of the page. Now, is it cool enough to be Nazarene's for number four piece, or is it Nazarene's F-O-R piece? Nazarene's F-O-R piece. Not as cool. Dot com. I'm very well, sorry. We can keep working okay. That's okay. Actually, That's they have nothing to do with having named the website or the group. <laughs> well, uh, would you, uh, for listeners who don't, who've never seen this before, who are hearing about this for the first time, or maybe have seen it and are like, I don't remember, can you take us through this? What... And you have the web page pulled up right now. Can sure. you just sort of take us through this and give us an idea of what what kind of things are on this? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of opening paragraph reads like this. Nazarenes United for Peace, which is the name of a kind of a grassroots group that exists on Facebook and Instagram and a couple other places, I think. Nazarenes United for Peace believe that American Christians are called by our creator to propose and support creative peaceful solutions to the unprecedented epidemic of firearms-related violence in the United States. And these solutions include things like eliminating high-capacity magazines, requiring testing and licensing for firearm ownership, universal background checks and registration for all firearms, including private transfers, and legislation prohibiting persons that have been convicted of a violent crime or of domestic abuse from owning firearms in the future. Again, just looking at this kind of bullet points list, uh, no pun intended, looking at this list, mm. Mm-mm-mm. I know, Oof. I'm sorry. Wow. Looking at the list, these are not things that are deeply controversial when it comes to what the broad swath of Americans say they support. Um, some of these things are already in place in particular states, but would not be reflected in federal legislation that applies to all the states. And... Um, This whole thing is rooted actually in a statement from the Nazarene Manual, uh, and I'll read that excerpt as well, uh, from Nazarene Manual section 922. The Church of the Nazarene believes that the ideal world condition is that of peace, and that it is the full obligation of the Christian Church to use its influence to seek such means as will enable the nations of the earth to be at peace and to devote all of its agencies for the propagation of the message of peace. Hmm. And so I don't want to speak for the group um, because I'm not the group, but I think it's important to see the ways in which this call in the manual is a call to action and is a call to advocacy, is a call to peace, Mm -hmm. is not a call to conflict and is not a call to starting fights or Um, Twitter wars or whatever, but is a call to activity. What does it mean to actively seek the peace of a place? Um, And I think trying to find creative responses to this seemingly unique in scope and casualty list problem of firearms-related violence in the United States trying to solve those kinds of problems and propose peaceful Christian solutions is the right thing to do and something that we are absolutely called to. And so I'm grateful for this uh, group and the way that they've outlined what some of those things could look like and why they fit within our theological framework. 
Have you noticed, Aaron, any any pushback to it? Uh, the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, I think that, as we spoke about earlier, the easiest way to motivate human beings is fear. It's not the only way, and it's certainly not the best way or the most Christ-like way, but it is the easiest way to motivate large groups of human beings to do anything or say anything or act in a particular way or go to a particular place or really you can just fill in the blank. And so I think that there have been times when responses to documents or, or proposals such as, such as these have been motivated by fear. Um, and sometimes that is fear of someone from a particular place or someone who speaks a particular language or fear that I'm going to lose something that is important to me, something that I own or something that was handed down to me or something that I worked hard for or something that I inherited. When fear orients the rest of the conversation, it can get really heated. And so that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a, a fear based. Not certainly not always or all the time, but I do think that when there is pushback against something that says, Hey, let's brainstorm some peaceful, creative solutions to this thing that we all know is a problem. Violence in the United States is a problem and gun violence in the United States in particular is a really deep, harmful societal problem. And it's something that we haven't figured out the answer for, uh, at least not yet. And so when we struggle to even have that conversation in ways that are Christ-like, or when we struggle to have that conversation in ways that have what Brueggemann might call a creative imagination, mm -hmm. when we are limited even by what we are willing to believe is possible, that's, I think, when we kind of get off the rails a little bit. Because we are people who believe in a resurrected God. We are people who believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to become more like Christ every day. And that's stark, raving, crazy nuts, except that it's true. And so one, right. of, the, one of the things that helps me think about this um, is language from Shane Claiborne, who had a whole video series a decade or two ago called Another World is Possible. In other words, we don't have to live in a world where war works the way that it does. We don't have to live in a world where poverty works the way that it does. We don't have to live in a world where racial injustice works the way that it does. And the only way to get there is if we become, in some ways, the answer to our prayers. If we become people who wage peace. If we become people who are willing to stand with the marginalized even in times of great cultural fear and anxiety. So I, I think it's important because we want to be those people of peace. I think it's important that we practice the empathy that we want to see demonstrated. Right. So let's do that right here. Um, I want to say as often as I'm giving, given opportunity, I, I know for a fact that there are Christian people uh, merciful people, generous people who do not agree with with those statements. 
Um, and we have already talked about fear being, for many, perhaps not all the people that I'm talking about, but for many, a prime motivator. But absent just an abject fear of the other that can devolve into something that looks like racism, right? What are, what, let's empathize. Sure. Why might, why might people be, contra- be uh, uh, against this kind of what we're calling, which it's, now it strikes me as something of a pejorative term, common sense gun reform. Mm. See what I'm saying? Sure. Why, why might people have struggles with that? So, again, kind of I'll put my professor's hat back on again. Um, we often think in terms of causation being social, political, or economic. Okay. There are other things that motivate human behavior as well. But if you're looking for uh, a way to kind of sketch the outline of causes of a particular thing, you want to see what's happening in society. You want to see what's happening in the culture in particularly. You want to see what's happening politically and economically. And so socially and culturally, I think part of what we've named is important. There are issues of racism. That's not the only thing in play. Um, for the El Paso shooter in particular, that's a clear and blatant Clearly. reason for the act of violence. Mm-hmm. Politically, and by that we mean not just partisan politics in the United States, but politically what is involved with people who belong to a city or a state or a country, um, what is happening in the lives of the citizenry. Um, we need to be mindful of the ways that some folks in our state and federal governments represent people who own large amounts of firearms purchased legally. And some of our folks don't. Some of our folks represent districts that have large amounts of firearms that were purchased illegally. Some of them don't. Some of our representatives are from places that are largely urban with lots of guns or rural with lots of guns. Some of our representatives represent districts who are completely the opposite and have no point of reference for this kind of uh, firearms ownership or why it's important and legal or illegal or any of the intricacies of regulation. We've also got to talk about the role that, and this is where politics and economics kind of blend, um, where's the money for these campaigns coming from and who's receiving from groups that want to have more regulation and who's receiving money from groups that want to have less regulation and how does that affect their voting record? And all of these things are at play sort of at the same time. And economically, we've got people who are worried about putting bread on the table. We've Mm -hmm. got people who are Mm -hmm. worried about jobs that are going largely overseas. We've got people worried about class and what it means um, to have a stagnating wage in this country. What does it mean to have difficulty making ends meet with a second job or even a third job? What's the difference between how hard we work and what we earn? What feels like a threat to that? And who are people often lower down the social, political, and economic totem pole that we can marginalize and demonize as a source of the problem? And as an American historian, that's not anything new, by the way. At the beginning of our country's history, we're looking down largely on the Germans and the Irish. And then later, a little bit after the American Civil War, we start looking down on persons from Southern Europe, from Slavic peoples. We're looking down on Italians. In the American West, 
were looking down on Asians, particularly Chinese immigrants, to the West Coast. In the American Southwest, we're looking down on Mexicans and on Native peoples who've been here since before any of the Europeans even arrived. That's leaving apart. I mean, you can talk about the experience of African Americans throughout the American experience. You can talk about the experience of Japanese Americans, particularly on the West Coast during World War II. Throughout our country's history, we have always struggled with identifying and isolating particular people groups, but it's kind of a shifting target. Yes, and. And I, I want to ask us again, is, isn't it possible for people to have real misgivings about this particular subject without them having racist tendencies? Yeah, I think that's largely true. I think we are all as human beings um, built with and need to be cognizant of some of our own racial biases. And that has nothing to do with the uh, the individual's race or ethnicity and has a lot to do with psychology and physiology and the ways that we just recognize people who look like us and the other and people who speak like us and the other. But yeah, that absolutely doesn't have to manifest in ways that lead us to isolate and exclude people from a different place or who speak a different language or whose skin color is different. We can have deep-seated reservations about lots of things for reasons that are particular to our personal experience. Mm -hmm. I think um, firearms regulations are one example of that, where there is a deeply held sort of cultural importance of firearms and the role that they have played in American history. Having said that, we're not wildly unique in that case. Um, Dr. Bob Lively, who's a retired professor of political science at Southern Nazarene University and a member of our Word and Table congregation here at SNU, said, listen, what's true of the United States and the role that the gun played in settling the West and interacting for good or ill, often ill, with Native peoples, and what it means to hunt and what it means to settle an area, all of those things are just as true in Canada as they are in the United States. Now, we've got some different answers for what kinds of regulations are important and how that works, but gun culture is very important and strong and alive in Canada, particularly in Western Canada. They have some different approaches. But the idea of what we own or don't own is not what makes us good people or bad people. But again, I think what's really important is, on the one hand, that we have these conversations in ways that are lovingly, uh, lovingly oriented. And on the other hand, we have the creative imagination to recognize that my experience is not the only one there is. And my belief structure is not the only one that matters. Yeah. And these conversations are only conversations if we all come to the table and we all that's listen. A, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I, I mean, I, I think we have all heard, and I, we're probably having to wrap it up soon. Is that what I, yeah. Okay. But we have all heard some of the arguments against, and some of them have some merits that we have to, to work through. So these, I let me just list a few of them. Sure. Uh, the one to me that, that, uh, well, here here are some of them. This is a video game problem. I'm not sure that that's true. Oh, gosh. We've been saying that since Columbine. Right. It just doesn't hold water uh, statistically. They've done, yeah, they've done studies. I mean, yeah, there, there are some studies that demonstrate a couple of things, that they play more video games at a higher rate in other countries and they don't have these problems. 
um, a higher percentage of the population plays them. And then, like you've said, Zach, they, they have demonstrated that there is not, in fact, a correlation between video game play. It's, there's not causation sure. there. Another thing I've heard is, well, this is this is a, a mental illness uh, issue. Now, I want to be careful with that conversation because I don't want to stigmatize the just staggeringly large percentage of our population, adult population, that is on some sort of uh, medication to address something like depression or anxiety because I'm not sure how far we want to stretch this term mental illness, right? Sure. And I don't want to stigmatize uh, those people as potential mass murderers. And I, and I think that's a real danger with that one. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. And this is another thing that is just statist- statistically viable, uh, verifiable, rather. The vast overwhelming majority of people who commit violent crimes of any kind are not mentally ill and do not have a diagnosed mental illness. And the vast overwhelming majority of people who commit mass shootings in particular are not mentally unwell and do not afterward, if they survive, have a diagnosed verifiable mental illness. Some of them do. The overwhelming majority do not. Right. Now, there will be people, because I, I hear from some these kinds of people sometimes, and again, that they, they are still friends. Okay, you've cited a couple of studies. Show me the studies. So I think we should be prepared to to email folks if they call or email us we should be prepared to to send okay well here here are the links to these particular studies we can do that yeah right? absolutely um, okay info at okcfirst.com email us if you would like links or more information about anything that we've talked today and uh, i help manage that email account and we'll be more than happy to let dialogue with you and provide you any kind of corroboration you want um, that's the kind of church that we are we care deeply about um, academic integrity and about the importance that education plays for all of us in who we are and what we believe and how we interact with this issue. Just looking around the room, I can say with certainty that none of us um, know everything there is to know about this conversation, and none of us are exactly where we were five or 10 years ago because we've learned more since then, and we have more information and more studies have come out since then too. Yeah. And the last, the last one I've heard that this actually carries some water with me, right? Is wait, this is this is an issue of the heart. Um, now, I agree with that, and because I agree with that, <laughs> we're going to do what we're doing as a church, and I'm going to advocate for yes, what we have already called some common sense uh, gun reform, some common sense measures that that can, or I think we can demonstrate that some, not all, some of these shootings could have been averted if if some of these things had been in place. Yeah. I think what we often call around here a yes and right. mentality can be really helpful in this conversation because, I mean, I was raised in a home where I wasn't allowed to play violent video games and I hated it and it drove me nuts. And now as an adult, I'm really grateful for it. Mm-hmm. But I think there can be some harm done there. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's what turns people into violent criminals or not, but I do think that it does things to our minds and our hearts Influence. that we should probably have second thoughts about. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is incredibly important. Right. And a lot of the same folks who are advocating for some of the reforms that we're talking about would also be the very first folks to say, 
and we can and we should do more right. when it comes to mental health care in this country. Right, right. And, and especially <laughs> yeah. what we talk about sometimes is the sin problem or the idea that people's hearts can be and often are bent toward violence, bent mm-hmm. toward fear, bent toward anger. That is part of the human condition, and that is part of what we as individuals and a community of faith exist to do, to learn to resist that and to learn to lean into the way that God and the Holy Spirit empowers us to choose against that and to choose life and love for God and neighbor. Here's the kicker. I've lived a couple of places. I know people who've lived way more places. Americans are not statistically, on average, playing more video games, violent or otherwise, than anyone else. Americans are not, on average, more mentally ill than anywhere else. Right. And Americans, I would venture to say, are not more sinful than other people anywhere else. So when it comes to the epidemic of firearms-related violence in the United States, I think those are important factors, but there are also other important factors in play. And what we owe it to the God that we love and what we owe it to the neighbor that we love is engaging our creative imagination to try to brainstorm more loving, just, peaceful solutions because that's what it means to live out our holiness ethic. And we can't, we, and we can't be the folks who do nothing. Yeah. I mean, we've got, we got to do something. Got to try. Yeah, got to try gotta something. Got to try. try something. Aaron, we, we cap off every podcast with hope um, yeah. and something that you are not a stranger to. Uh, going back to our social media conversation, I want you to just take a moment. Uh, you you kind of said a lot of it, um, at least what I would think would be a lot of it just now. But what is your hope for the Capital C Church? And actually, let me just clarify for the Capital C American Church. Um, as we continue to encounter uh, this epidemic of gun-related violence in, uh, in America? I have, I think, three great hopes for the American church as it relates to struggling with fear and violence in general, and not just guns in particular, but, but with fear and with the way that violence shapes the way that we respond to fear. The first is that I hope that we will rediscover and reimagine the creator God described throughout the Old Testament as abounding in steadfast love, because that's the narrative that guides all of the rest of Scripture. That's how we understand the inherent nature and character of God, this steadfast love, the chesed that makes God who God is in relationship to all of us. My second great hope would be that we would remember and take seriously the Christ of the New Testament who calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Um, I'll steal from Tony Campolo here, who used to say that, I think when Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he probably meant don't kill them. (laughs) (laughs) That's simplistic, but also helpful. Um, (laughs) The third, the third great hope that I have, especially as a Nazarene, especially someone who has been raised in and lives in and loves this Wesleyan holiness heritage, my hope is that we will trust the Holy Spirit can and will empower us to increase in our love for God 
and our love for neighbor every single day. That's what John Wesley called sanctification. That's what we're about when we talk about being holiness people. And those are my great hopes for the church, each of us and all of us. I like that. That's why that is that even more than his organizational skills. That's why he's here. <laughs> organizational Man. skills are a bonus. Whew. Man, I feel like we need to take a deep breath. Yep, yep, was, yep. It was a good hour. And I feel like we would have an even bigger backlash of uh, of the Twitter trolls, of the Facebook trolls of the world if we didn't do rapid fire questions. Well, I would hate to give them fodder. Yeah, we don't we don't want that. So, Aaron, if you didn't know, uh, this is rapid fire questions. Yes. Uh, we have not prepared you in any way, have we? No, not at all. No, nope. not at all. So you have no clue what questions we're going to ask you. I don't. Right. We're going to go uh, one by one. Yep. John and I back yep. and forth. Who do you want? You want me to start? I want you to bat lead off. You want? Wow, this is. I think this might be my first time. Yeah. Wow, this is a big day. Jump right in. Were you Man, prepared I'm, for this? No, no, I'm growing up. This okay. is good. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll start you off very easy. Bring it on. It's the color of your toothbrush. My toothbrush is bamboo, <sighs> and so it's uh, wood right. grain. Wood grain. Wow. Yeah. Okay, fashion question. Yes, sir. Um, stripes or plaid? <laughs> this is funny because anybody who knows me knows that I will say plaid all day, every yeah. day. Okay, all you'll day. have that opportunity again. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, top golf or mini golf? Oh. Not a huge fan of either. I'm way too competitive for my own good. So tetherball. Yes. Uh, height is helpful in tetherball. Probably mini golf. I've never been good at golf because I'm both very tall and left-handed. And so I could never go to a driving range and just grab a club that was the appropriate size and shape and whatever. Um, but I can putt ish. So I'll, I'll take oh. mini golf. Oh, that's great. And I'll, we probably shouldn't keep score because okay. I care way too much about this stuff. All right. Wow. wow. Spots or plaid? <laughs> uh, I guess also plaid. Okay. It's going to depend Good. on the context a little bit, but Spots. I like plaid. All right. Uh, what was the first CD you ever bought? Oh, goodness. Um, I, the short answer is I don't know. I could tell you the first CDs I ever owned, but I think the first couple were both gifts. And so that will tell you at least as much about the people who gave me CDs as anything else. But the first CD that I ever received from my family was a greatest hits collection, love songs and car songs uh, of the Beach Boys. <laughs> Which that, that was I, a sentence that just got better and better. I know, right? <laughs> it aged well. Man. Yes. Uh, like a fine cheese. Uh, paisleys or plaid? Oh, man. That is. See, we're getting deeper into the nitty gritty. So, like neckties, I'm going to go with paisley. Okay. Oh, well, that's good. Also, hey. places in Scotland. Paisley's great. It's just right. outside Glasgow. I've got good friends there. Shout out to Robson Dodd. Oh, man. I love that guy. I'm Robson telling you. Dodd. Oh, Robson. Does he listen? Does he download? I don't, I don't know. I, I will uh, forward him a link to this okay. conversation. Right. He also wears a lot of plaid. He's a fan favorite of the OKC First Youth Department. Yeah. Strongly sure. a good man. He interned with us for a summer, a year. Extended summer. membership. Summer. Across the summer. pond summer. membership. Yes. Yeah, across the pond. Uh, your top two or three West Wing episodes. Oh, gosh. First Ooh, one. Wow. Uh, I know. I know him well. So. First one, best one. This Sabbath day. It's from season one. Oh, I think it's episode gosh. eight, maybe. It's about the death penalty. Literally uh, changed my mind about the way I think about fear and violence and capital punishment in the United States. Man, that's mm. an incredible episode. Uh, one of the best ones is actually from season five, which is surprising. It's Post Sorkin. Sorkin. Yeah. Aaron Sorkin no longer writing. It's called The Supremes. 
has Glenn uh, Close. It does have Glenn Close and that My other guy. Goodness, what is happening here? This is incredible. <laughs> Uh, there are so many other good ones. Those are probably my two favorites. Um, two cathedrals is a good one. You got Martin Classic. Sheen yelling at God in, in Latin, in Latin, in the national cathedral. Some, I love the West Wing so much. It is without exaggeration, my all time favorite means of entertainment of any kind. It's wonderful. Well, I love it too, but I'm intimidated by the knowledge being, well, I, we're, we're both frequent here. listeners of the West Wing podcast. That's true. Uh, Rishi Case Your Way and, uh, Joshua, Joshua Molina. Molina, man. Yeah. Big shout out to them. You should go listen to that podcast. If Strongly you, uh, agree. If you okay, like two that part show. question. Yes, sir. Uh, houndstooth or plaid? <laughs> uh, in every situation except <laughs> SEC headwear, plaid. Okay. But Bear Bryant uh, is his own thing. And so you don't mess with the houndstooth hat. Oh, I, I agree with that. And the second part, um, how many. How many people are in your home now? How many people live in your in Oh, your that's home a great now? question. Oh, okay. We've got, I actually have to count every time somebody asks me. Yeah. We've got one, two, three, four, and me and Britt, that's six. And then Mike Vero, who lives on the property but not right. in the house, that's seven. Airstream. Four chickens and one dog. Dog. The dog's name is? Tilly. Tilly. Yeah. Okay, I it's have short another. for Matilda. Yeah, yeah oh. that's all Oh, wait, oh, wait, wait. I'll do one, then you do it, and then right. we're good. We're okay. good to go. Right. Uh, what is... I just love this question. What's the most human-like name you'd name a cat? What is the most human-like name I would name a cat? I mean, you guys are pretty good at naming sure. animals things. Right. Um, I've never thought about this, and I'll tell you why. I'm allergic to cats. Okay. Like, a lot. So pick somebody you don't like. Uh, oh, you know, nope, I just, don't. Wow. I do just that. decided do in this that. moment no. what I would name a cat if I owned it. Oh. Mrs. Landingham. Oh, that's good. Oh, West wow. Wing. That's right. That is good. Wow. No, we like Mrs. Landingham. Strongly agree. Great. Okay. Uh, the name of your favorite housemate? Britt. Correct. Yes. That is correct. Oh. I I regret to inform you that Britt answered that question with Tilly. Yeah. She said Tilly. <laughs> yeah. That figures. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've prepaid okay. some marital counseling for you guys so i appreciate that as a we'll, parting gift we'll get through it it's gonna be all right <laughs> strong endorsement for marriage counseling here yes. at the end of this podcast this is it for uh our podcast thank you so much aaron hopefully for joining not us. like forever no no well no, no, that's no. it that's well, a wrap on peace the out we're done that was it <laughs> sorry i broke the podcast guys <laughs> and gals yes exactly all all who are listening chickens tilly yeah. Yeah, everybody. Mrs. Landingham. Yes. All right. Uh, thank you, Aaron, so much for stopping by. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. John, thanks as always. Always a pleasure. We're See signing you. off. See oh, you soon. Gosh, I just cut you off. I'm sorry. That's all right. Well, sorry. Well, this is awkward. <laughs> signing off. See you guys next time. This has been another episode of Unafraid. As always, we'd love to hear from you regarding future topics and questions that we might try and tackle. The best way to get a hold of us is by emailing info at okcfirst.com. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Your feedback and support is crucial to this podcast, and we can't thank you enough. And remember, no matter who you are, you are loved. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time.